When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Joe's Boys. This is a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now. I'm also a writer for publications like Pitchfork, Billboard, and Vanity Fair. And I'm here today with my very special guest, Leo Min. Leo is the author of the novel Beating Heart Baby, which was named one of the best books of 2022 by BuzzFeed, Publishers Weekly, BookPage, Kirkus Reviews, and the Chicago Public Library, among others. Their writing has appeared in Nylon, Fader, Catapult, and many more. And they've interviewed all of your faves. I'm talking Mitski, Japanese Breakfast, Rina Sawayama, Caroline Polachek, Soccer Mommy, just to name a few. Leo, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Yeah, it's fabulous to have you here. This episode has been a long time in the making. (laughs) So what is your relationship to Little Women? I definitely read it when I was a kid. I did not really engage with it that much more than any other book at the time, I would say. But because I knew I was going to be on this podcast soon, I read this story of essays about tomboyism called Joe's Boys. Forget the name of the editor. But yeah, basically it was excerpts of writing and poetry that were... Poetry is writing. I mean, like novels, memoirs, and poetry and stuff like that. About tomboyism and then also different stages of life tomboyism. Yeah. So that was really cool. Can you send that to me? I've never heard of that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, it was just one of those things where it's, oh, you know, little women's on the mind. I don't think I otherwise would have sought it out, but it's definitely interesting. And I ended up being floored by the ways in which they approached it, I guess. The ways in which tomboyism was structured throughout as a stage of life thing. Yeah, it was cool. And it was also like a chance to read real literature, which for the first yeah. time in a while. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. I have been reading real literature, but just not of that real nature. I've been getting, mm-hmm. reading a lot of sci-fi recently. Yeah. So that was cool. Yeah. But otherwise, haven't really touched it at much. I've watched right. various adaptations over the years. And, you know, it's a story that a lot of people are familiar with. Once upon a time, I knew a lot more about it. And now I have a chance to think about it a little bit more deeply, but also yes. not deeply, as we will talk about. <laughs> yes, because as you were, what were you saying? Anime some of these animes that we're going to discuss here are mid at best. So, mid at best. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So yeah. that's life. That's life. So I found the anthology that you're talking about, I think. So it's called Joe's Girls. Yes. <laughs> so I'm just thinking about this. I was yes. like, oh yeah, Joe's oh. Boys. Yeah. So Joe's Girls, Tomboy Tales of High Adventure, True Grit, and Real Life. It's a collection of fiction and memoir that looks at what it has really meant to be a tomboy from the 19th century to the present and if the refusal to turn into a young lady has implied. 
So I'm seeing Willa Cather, Sandra Cisneros, Colette, Simone de Beauvoir, Ursula K. Le Guin's in here. Like, this looks very cool. I'm going to be checking this out. So, and also I recommend that to our readers as well. It sounds like it's more just about tomboyism than Joe specifically, but. Yeah, I think that they took the archetype of Joe as a starting point to build the collection. And yeah, it was just, it was cool to read. They basically do a sampler, one of those old school mixed CD samplers for a label (laughs) or something. All Joe girls. I will say something that was pretty funny reading it casually. The relationship between tomboyism in literature and horses (laughs) is so strong. Yes. These stories are about (laughs) horses. And I'm like, damn, okay. (laughs) And that's funny because Alcott has said in the same, in the interview, in fact, right before she says, I feel as though I am by some freak of nature, a man's soul in a woman's body. She says, I feel like I was a horse in a past life. And people have made light of that and saying, well, that discredit, that shows how serious she was being about saying that she was a man's soul in a woman's body. But fun fact, Alcott actually believed in reincarnation. So, <laughs> so it, it was, you know, tongue in cheek, but it was also sin- sincere. Anyway, well, what we're talking about today, before before we get into the anime of it all, which March sister are you? And keep in mind, for the purposes of this podcast, Lori is a March sister. Okay. I feel like every... The easy choice, again, because I have not thought that deeply about this for a very long time, is to just go with Joe because writer for writer. I don't know. I feel like I got a little bit of Amy, though. A little bit, yeah. A little bit of Amy. Amy vibes. She's got some stuff going on. I unfortunately can relate to some of this in some ways, but it's not about family. It's about the world. Yeah. Yeah. That's sufficiently vague enough that I don't have to... (laughs) pack it up so (laughs) it's been advanced that everyone is a blend of two march sisters Mm. so if you're a joe son amy moon i think that makes a lot of sense but now we're since we're talking about your fabulous book which march sister is santi and which one is sua oh god sua is obviously a joe (laughs) does that make santi a lot maybe maybe i kind of think yeah i think the dynamic maps onto yeah Wow, it's a fascinating way of thinking about it. Okay, now I know what this. Now I, I a couple people I need to text that too. <laughs> just be like, I just had a breakthrough this morning. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. I think that, that scans, which is funny. <laughs> well, with the exception of it's requited in your book more than Joe and Laurie. There's no sure eventually there's no, requited. Yes. Sure, yes. So now, in a normal episode, this is where I'd ask you to recap today's chapter for us, but. This is a special scrap bag episode, and it's all about anime. Little women in anime, Louisa May Alcott in anime. Let's get into it. First of all, what is anime? Okay, so anime is and isn't the same thing as animation, where I would say the specific part of it that makes it its own fun little subcategory is the nationalistic aspect of it. The anime industry is settled. I mean, on actually a lot of fronts, I said that as a catch-all for it's based in Japan, but it certainly does, as with all media products of places, it does have parts of it that are steeped in iconography that depending on how it's used can or cannot be vectors, light cultural vectors of imperialism. So that's a part of it. It's a whole thing about how Rising Sun iconography used yeah. in animation or like anime. People are like, are we still here? Is this still where we are? But that's its own thing. We're going to table it for now. Yeah. The big thing is that in the same way that you have 
the U.S. entertainment industry is built in these conglomerates and they have these long histories that there are studios and figures within anime that have that same canonical, this is how we built our industry. This is the way that the industry works. These are the pathways that you take as an animator, specifically in the anime industry. I would say that the thing that people outside of anime are most familiar with probably are the eyes, the anime eyes and the anime style, which is the stereotype that comes to mind as soon as I said that. But it's Mm -hmm. also much broader than that. And yeah, I don't know. I feel like in the beginning, there's entanglement between the impact of Disney abroad and then also the ways in which something like an Astro Boy, someone like Osamu Tezuka blew open the translation and then the foundation of its own thing. So it's very simplistic to say that anime exists because of Disney, but that's also not true in some ways. And a lot of, as we'll talk about, a lot of early anime was based off of Western, Western, not fairy tales, but Western canonical literature, yeah. children's literature. One of the first productions that Hayao Miyazaki of Studio Ghibli ever worked on was like an anime of Heidi, the girl in the Alps. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's him I'm talking about. It might be someone else, but I'm, pr- I'm 99% sure it's Miyazaki that worked on Heidi. Yeah. So the relationship between anime and children's media or children's storytelling has been there from the very beginning. Obviously, that's not all it's been used for. If you've ever had the fortune of walking past a car covered in stickers of anime girls, you know that it is not just for <laughs> kids. Yeah, <laughs> apparently the Japanese word for that type of car is called itasha, which literally means cringe car, <laughs> which I think, or like painful car, which I oh think is very God. funny. Yeah. Also, we we'll need to fact check that. But I am again, 99 sh- 99% sure that is yes. the case. So what I can fact check for you is that yes, Hayao Miyazaki did, and Hayao Miyazaki, the auteur of anime, like far and away, the director of Spirited Away, which was the first anime to win Best Animated Film, the Oscars. He's a legend. It doesn't look like this Heidi adaptation, which is from the 1970s, is really of the quality that we would expect from Miyazaki. (laughs) I mean, you know. yeah. Yeah, starting out, he was doing scene design layout and screenplay for this. It was, interestingly, this was the company that it was produced by the same company that would later make one of the Little Women adaptations that we're talking about today. So yeah, the style is very, very similar. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for that breakdown of what anime is and how cringe it is to cover your car and anime stickers. But in addition to just anime in general and the many ways that Little Women has been represented in anime, like it's just more broadly popular in Japan. It's extremely, it was a special favorite of Empress Michiko, who visited Orchard House, the Louisa May Alcott House Museum in 1987, and personally wanted to sit at the desk where Louisa May Alcott wrote Little Women. So there's a longstanding history of deep love for Little Women in Japan expressed in the anime that we're going to be talking about today. So there's 1981 Little Women's Four Sisters, which is directed by Kazuya Miyazaki. The 1987 Love's Tale of Young Grass, directed by Fumio Kurakawa. And a sequel anime, Tale of Young Grass, Nan and Miss Joe, which was based on Little Men and Joe's Boys. That was directed by Kozo Kasuba. And then most recently, the manga slash anime slash it sounds like full-blown cultural phenomenon, Bungo Stray Dogs which is of the past 10 years in which Louisa May Alcott herself appears as a character. So we have a lot to discuss, Leo. Where should we begin? (laughs) 
So what I will say is that the first two slash two plus adaptations, the earlier ones, yeah, they're pretty faithful in terms of the actual, this is the story and that we are adapting it versus what happens yeah, yeah. in Stray Dogs. The style yeah. again is that older, that softer anime style, the version of it that is aesthetically fetishized by a lot of people. This is the er anime look for that yeah. soft, pastel, cottage core, nature core <laughs> version of the world. And I had an inkling that yeah. the Heidi thing was related because the style was too yeah, similar yeah. for the older one. Yeah, but they're basically the Ghibli versions, the not Ghibli versions of <laughs> the story and how it's adapted. Yes. And yeah, it's not trying to necessarily push any sort of story sure. boundaries. I think maybe we'll start with the first one, which is 1981, Little Women's Four Sisters. That one is a very faithful adaptation of the story. I don't think it's very emotionally complex. From the episodes I watched, it was hard to even distinguish the sisters' personalities at times. They're just trying to do good and help yes. people in their community. Yes. The animation style, it's these painted backgrounds that the characters sort of are animated and move around in. Yeah. They do a very fun rig of the play scene, which in the book is it's in the girl's living room. It's just very casual and they're putting it on. But in this anime, they have a full venue and the whole town has showed up to see the play and they're hammering these massive sets together. <laughs> so it's a bit heightened in that way, but it's very faithful. It did seem kind of low budget. It's hard to make this because the way that we think about yeah. quality of animation and the, what is it, mm -hmm. the limitations of the time to, right. where there's a portion of it that to me reads just as charming. Oh, sure, you know, yeah, like, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I think that the focus was spent on more of making sure that there was a cohesive look yeah. versus the intricacies that we associate now where taking a lingering moment, building it out to be like its own yes, yeah, beautiful little jiffable moment. Right, right. But the amount of time and effort that is spent on these <laughs> shows, I think, has just gone up sharply over the years. Yeah. And it doesn't stand the test of time. It kind of just stands outside of time. Yeah, I think so. And it's yeah, it's very charming. And it very much has that not to say that the anime girl effect is <laughs> applies as I much here. But kind of, it's just the ultra flattening of girlhood into something that's uh -huh. very specific. Normally, as we'll talk about later, in the productions that people associate with big popular anime now, they take the only girl syndrome and turn it mm -hmm. into like its own beautiful <laughs> art form. But yeah, in this case, it's like when you have a lot of distinct girl characters, but Again, the whole feeling is like very charming and very, oh, this is just little women, but it's like the little women aesthetic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lots of lovely painted countryside scenes. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, it's the version of little women that if you imagine a little women anime, that would be exactly that in some ways. Yeah. Literally what it is. It's not innovating a lot. I will say when you're speaking about anime girl syndrome, I mean, Joe March <laughs> in this anime has bright yellow hair down to her ass and Big blue eyes, and <laughs> it's a much more feminine Joe, even than in the second anime that we'll discuss. Yeah, so I, I mean, she's still shown kind of cross-dressing in the play, but I don't get so much of a sense of Joe as this ultra tomboy, I think, in yeah. this particular adaptation, Yeah, which is, it's sort of a bummer. I only watched the episode with the play. I don't know if you watched others 
And you I have, watched uh, I think, a couple mixes yeah. of clips. I was kind of scene hopping, <laughs> but you know, it's the patience that one has to watch this kind of thing. This is something that actually, what was the production schedule of this? I imagine it aired like a regular episodic thing. Yeah. So I can pull that up for you. Yeah. This was in 1981. So this was the earlier version. I will just hold on a second. I'm going to do some Googling here to get the information in front of us. So it it aired on TV. It was episodic and it aired, I think, over the course of a few months. It was eventually syndicated. Yeah. So it aired from April to September in 1981. There were 26 episodes. It did get syndicated throughout Japan, throughout the United States even. But yeah, there's an English dub. I found at least some episodes on YouTube if you're interested in checking this out. But again, I think it's not a surprise to me that it was adapted again a few years later. And even then, the leap in obvious budget yeah. and scope is very different. Tales of Little Women is 48 episodes running over the course of a year. This one was only 26. And then there was, of course, the sequel animated to the second one. So yeah, this is, it looks to me much more very classic 80s anime. Yeah, the development of the art still. <laughs> yeah, looking at it now, especially just because because the you're right, the leap in it where it's the proto Ghibli version, and then the next one is straight up looks like the Ghibli fied version of that. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, it's, it's because Miyazaki was coming into his power over this period of time. <laughs> the, the look of anime was changing a lot. We don't see as much of the color palette here. It's very dark compared to the second version. Yeah. The mood, not necessarily. The mood is this like very bad, <laughs> but it's a lot of these dark and gloomy winter scenes. There's, I guess, offsetting the very buoyant tone of the scenes with the March sisters is Lori's grandfather's like a cartoon villain who like we only see in shadow <laughs> and barking orders at people. So we, it, I guess that does a good sense of really establishing the difference between the two environments. But I think it's sort of, this was an early start, something to be improved that we would see improved upon maybe depending on how you look at it. But yeah, certainly extremely faithful to the book. The third episode is called Joe's Boyfriend, which I hope (laughs) is sarcasm (laughs) because we eventually get later on, I think Joe sort of figures out her authorship and becomes more independent. But yes. Yeah. So it's an interesting thing to check out just as an artifact, if nothing more for true little women heads. (laughs) I will say I found this and... Tales of Little Women. I have enjoyed anime. As you may not know, I have some favorite series. I found this a little bit tedious. I think it is for very young audiences. Oh, yeah. It's for very young audiences. And it's also a version of encountering the material that you already kind of know. Yeah. And so either it's taking you exactly where you know you're going to go, or it's taking you on a journey beyond the source (laughs) and then kind of playing with the characters as the archetypes. Basically, like, they're little doll versions of themselves and you just are playing with your own story for at least the second one or the second plus one. So Yeah. Well, let's get into that second one now. So we've discussed the 1981 version, the 1987 adaptation, which was, it sounds, when we say little women anime, this is the one that comes up first. It's about double the length of the first version. The art style is very different. It's clear that more money was spent, although maybe not much more. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but the fascinating thing, this is, this one is really interesting to me because they take massive liberties with the story. Yeah. So the, I think the biggest change is that the marches begin living near Gettysburg in Pennsylvania. So at the outset of the story, they live in Pennsylvania and Mr. March is home from the war. 
it's a brave <laughs> choice because all of these other the book itself hinges on the dad's away and we're waiting for him. He comes home in the first episode here. <laughs> I'm not sure why the narrative utility of him being home, but he's home and he goes out with the family on a picnic at which Joe, who is much more of a tomboy, she's really rendered in that kind of shonen hero. <laughs> you know, she has a shonen boy face and then there's a ponytail attached. That's how I read it. <laughs> anyway, so she climbs a tree and sees a Confederate army nearby, which, <laughs> okay. And then, so Mr. March is like, uh-oh. So actually, it's when I say that they're a bit tedious, after Joe spots the Confederates nearby, that's not enough. And she and her father have to go on a scouting expedition just to confirm that they're there and burn up another five minutes of runtime. <laughs> yeah, this stuff is expensive. All animation period yeah, is expensive. Yeah. And it truly boggles my mind sometimes how they choose to spend that time uh, and money. I, Reusing frames and stuff like that, that makes sense to me. But then they'll take a moment and then draw it out in a way where I'm like, it doesn't need to be that long, maybe, but you had commitments. Yeah. The joke that we always have in our household is imagine like an animator coming home from work. And it's, usually it's in the service of Dear Diary. Today, I made a pair of titties bounce particularly <laughs> buoyantly, you know, two big water balloons flying in the opposite directions. Water balloon. But in this case, today I animated part of a civil war interspersed with the classic story little women in a way that is adventurous, but it's also a textbook version of adventurous. The most standard yeah. version of adventure that you can, I guess, put together Again, the anime girl thing where you are a tomboy, it has to be taken up to the biggest possible level. Yeah, I can definitely see that it's an effort to like inject some action into the beginning by saying, it's not just, oh, dad's away at war. It's, oh, no, the war is here. The war is on our doorstep. And I guess the only issue then is it becomes pacing because they spot the Confederates in the first episode. By the second episodes, the Confederates have fully just taken over the town (laughs) and the little women are still kicking around and- In particular, Joe is like, okay, well, I hope that the fighting doesn't get too bad because I want to go to this dance and wear my new dress. And that's (laughs) first of all, in what world is that Joe March? Secondly, just from a story logic point of view, I think in the second episode, the Confederates have taken over the town and the marches are talking about leaving. They will eventually move to Massachusetts and then kind of the regular events of Little Women will begin. But there's a good five episodes where they're still in Gettysburg and talking about moving soon. And we're spending a lot of time on Beth has a new kitten. We're getting these dresses ready to go for the dance. I'm really not sure about this one, guys. I mean, it's what's fascinating about it, though, along with the choice to kind of more firmly situate it in the center of the Civil War <laughs> with the Confederates, not only on their doorstep, but actually invading their home at some points, is that yeah. we get actual Black characters In this adaptation, the character of Hannah is rewritten as a Black character, like a free Black woman who's working for the marches as a housemaid. And there's also a really, I think, daring sequence that's of a young man named John who's escaping from slavery, and he hides out in the marches shed, at which point I don't like that he sort of kidnaps Beth and holds her hostage for a minute. It's not the portrayal of a free Black man that I would have chosen. (laughs) 
But the situation is very quickly de-escalated by Marmy coming in and being like, no, you're safe. We're not going to let anything happen to you. They hide him while the Confederates storm through the house and look for him. And he's able to safely escape to freedom. And Hannah has a lot of agency. She gets to kind of be the voice of, you know, why the Confederates are so hateful and why it's so important to her that young man be freed. At the same time, though, I it's some of Beth's dolls are blackface dolls. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, <laughs> I was like, how does one approach yeah. the history of... Well, exactly. It's a very complicated history. This is not even just the portrayal of Black people and slavery in Western media. This is a whole other can of worms, yeah. right? Yeah. I don't know if we have time to like get fully into it, but we it's have just time. Like, okay. <laughs> Basically, the betrayal of Black characters in cultures in which there is a more nebulous racial makeup or not even nebulous, but you have a very large dominant homogeneous, homoge- homogeneous, homogeneous. There homogeneous. We go. Oh my God. I do say words out loud sometimes. Population. And then they don't have the very clear historical divide in the same way as, and also the history is much longer and more complicated. Actually, that's not true. It's much longer. And there's just been more, there's been more history in most countries besides America. I feel like we can all say this certainly. (laughs) And so the relationship between blackness versus whiteness and what is the dominant characteristic or something like that is like very different. But when you take on a Eurocentric point of view or Eurocentric style, which I would say a lot of early animation is, again, indebted to maybe not the Disney look per se, but the Disney version of taking stories. And I wasn't prepared to answer I wasn't prepared to talk about this this in depth in the sense of it being the ways in which not even blackness, but just like skin tone rendering and stuff like that, where the literal tone diversity of characters is like its own fraught (laughs) little thing. And you do see this in Western animation, obviously. But then once this is exported, literally exported over, and then the ways in which it's been codified within the aesthetic space of this industry itself, it can get a little weird. Yeah. yeah. The, is it a better or worse take on the story? The story itself is a capital G good representation or like a good intentioned, I would say. Oh, completely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, where it, oftentimes you bump into these archetypes or stereotypes in the world mm-hmm. of the story where you're like, it thinks that it's good, but it's actually bad or it, it is yeah. bad and it knows it's bad. And in this case, it wants to be good. It's trying to do good. And it just cannot reconcile the what it is that it's doing with the goodness that it proclaims to be doing. And then the reality of the world that they're in. And part of me is trying to jump through the hoop of like, is it a good choice to reflect blah, blah, blah of the time? But I don't think it's that deep, probably. As someone who worked on this production would like to climb out of the woodwork and be like, no, this is exactly what we meant or like exactly what we're doing. But yeah, it's funny. On the one hand, one has to applaud them for doing this in, what is it, 1980? This was 1987. Yeah. Yeah. And on the other hand, it's not consistent because it didn't have to be consistent. It was already an anomaly in some ways that it was doing this at all. That said, it's always very funny to hear about 
these big historic events filtered through the gaze of yeah but there's a lot of literature and stuff like that, that but when you try to fold it in as the backdrop for like your otherwise lighthearted coming of tale thing coming yeah. of age tale right coming of tale yeah where i'm like totally yeah it wants to thread the needle of being this cute thing and then also right, tackling right. these big things but the tone when it's trying to maintain that kind of consistency or that slice of life quality when you're yeah. talking about big stuff like that then the big stuff comes in as either more straight up moralization <laughs> or it gets turned into these elaborate set pieces that have nothing like you're like yes. where's yeah. what is this yeah. what am i actually taking in i don't know yeah the yeah. cutification of history yeah, in the same way that I'm sure if I tried to summarize any episode of Japanese history right now, I'm sure it would sound just as disjointed and <laughs> off the dome as in their rendering of the Confederates occupying a town and looking for enslaved people would be. Yes. I do think, as you said, it's very moralistic. It's big set pieces that either overwhelm the story or kind of get shunted to the background. In particular, the search for the Confederates sweeping the house for John takes over an entire episode. And that's the whole thing. Whereas in other situations, the imminent, not even just threat, but Confederates have occupied your town. They've hung the stars and bars from the flag at City Hall. And we are still dealing with a new kitten and like <laughs> trying to go to the dance. The priorities get very weird. And for as much as I do think that Hannah is an emotionally complex character, I think that she gets to offer a lot of very nuanced insight, not even just for the time, but for any kind of Civil War media. It's a recurring thing that we talk about, that issues of race in the Civil War are not present in the original Little Women to a, a huge extent. And they've similarly been kind of whitewashed out of subsequent adaptations. Here, it's more front and center than I don't know about front and center. It's in there. <laughs> you know, it has a it has a more prominent role than I think we're used to seeing. By the same token, I just had to look it up while we're talking. And the voice actors for both of the black characters here are white people. This is a standard-ish thing. I don't know. Yeah. Or something that you run into is just ooh, God. The ways in which voice actor diversity and that kind of thing and that alignment of representation, you see it in Western animation now. It is important in terms of the ways in which all who's working right who's yeah. working on something even if they're not the actual face of it you always want that space to be as wildly populated as possible wildly is not the word but you know what i mean yeah and then the reality of what it actually affects is a little bit different in that point then where it's more about equity it's more about having the bodies actually be there and it's yes. more about yeah. i think this comes up a lot with accents and stuff like that obviously mm -hmm. but then as far as what i don't know if anime has had that same reckoning for a variety of reasons and it certainly was not something that was going to be happening for the 80s yeah sorry i should emphasize so all of the voice actors in the original japanese nippon animation production were japanese yeah right not getting yeah. any black people oh so, so, sorry but I, but I should have backed yeah, this yeah, up yeah. by saying no the people that were like working on specifically like porting over outside right. media that community that was probably not super diverse. No. <laughs> yeah, they were not thinking about it at all, no. I'm sure, because that's where every voice actor in the English dub produced for H. It aired on HBO, it sounds, and another network called Smile of a Child. So I'm sure they were not thinking about, you smile the smile of a child. I take it that's okay. They do a lot of anime. No, no, I just, that's such a cute and somewhat yeah. ominous name. <laughs> yeah. It's like aggressively so, cute. Yeah. Yeah. They were not thinking about 
the conversation, like, let's get some black people in the room to voice these black characters was simply not being had. So, no. I mean, that it's so difficult because I think some of the writing here is genuinely very sophisticated. And some of it is, I'm sorry, the Confederates are sweeping your house. And <laughs> Joe Marsh is like, I need a new dance for the ball, please. No, in what world? So, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's wacky. I haven't, did you, how much of this did you watch? I watched, Leo. again, parts of it. Uh, it's a lot of this stuff is floating around because this hasn't been licensed. The licensing or whatever is not up to date. So whatever sure. you can find on YouTube for the most part, right? <laughs> and the big thing for me was the ways in which the characters move about and stuff like that. There's clearly somebody wanted to make Little Women and they wanted to use Little Women as an actual... They weren't just saying it's Little Women, but I do think the fact that it's Tales of. Where it's, yes. okay, this is the starting point. This is how we want to move the story along and it's in a way where i feel like the if you are coming at it and you're like oh i wanted to see like a more sophisticated animeification of little women this is the style that you would think of but for all of the things that you mentioned yeah it's not quite that in ways that are good slash interesting and in ways that are probably very what is yeah. it infuriating <laughs> no it's mostly interesting. I think the choice specifically to locate the beginning of it in the center of the battle in the Civil War, that tells me a lot about how the Civil War is viewed in Japan. I think we can learn a lot just about how American history is viewed internationally. At the same time, I said this with the last one, but I really tried to watch as much of this as I could. I, it just It's made for very young children. It's yeah. not... The pacing is very weird. I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> necessarily to like adult viewers. But, you know, it is interesting to see the license that they take. The Professor Bear becomes this rival reporter that Joe has an antagonism with, which sounds fun to me. It sounds like Joe's newspaper career becomes a very prominent part of the story later on. Of course, the transliterations of these episode titles is extremely funny because it's like, father is dying, dot, dot, dot. Joe sells her hair, exclamation point. Or, Don't die, exclamation point. Amy has fallen in the river. <laughs> so... Some of it is is very funny, but it's hard to watch as an adult. I'll just say that. It's yeah. <laughs> what is the thing? There was something that flashed in my head for a second as you were saying <laughs> that. Yeah, this is the version of it that you... This is like the exciting version yeah, of it. Yeah. And so yeah. it's... Oh, the thing that I was going to say is that I maybe should have reread Little Women before because I'm not as attuned yeah, yeah, yeah. to the differences, but there are things that I did notice where it's like, dad's back. <laughs> dad's here. <laughs> But the tone of it is very much the fun, spunky girls adventure that happens to be set in the Civil War. Not just ambiently, like it is set no, in the Civil War. Yeah. yeah. But then the way that it's framed is being about the family and all this stuff. Yeah. Which is, yeah, I wonder if this is a license that only a non-US-based production <laughs> would probably make those choices. Yeah. I get the sense that just the issues of slavery are still kind of radioactive because they don't show up even in the recent versions with Maya Hawke and Saoirse Ronan. We just don't see a lot of that. So I will, I'll set that aside. I'll say that this version does a lot. It improves on the 1981 version that the characters, the girls are much more differentiated. They're, they're both real. In like, <laughs> yeah, both in style and demeanor. Amy in particular, Amy begins, <laughs> Amy is like the protagonist and narrator for the first little while. <laughs> The funniest thing, we've talked about this on the show before, but in the books, Amy basically gets in trouble for drawing a mean caricature of her teacher. 
And in this one, she draws a drawing of the teacher that is so nice that the teacher congratulates her. And I'm like, yes, as Amy is the narrator of life, she says, so my painting was so good that the teacher loved it. (laughs) So I think the first episode is a fun watch if you just want to get a feel for the vibe of this. I think that Joe especially is much more of a fun tomboy and she has a lot of fun physicality in her animation. So I think this is the stronger of the two. I did not investigate Little Women to Joe's Boys aka Tale of Young Grass, Nan and Miss Joe, but I think it speaks to the popularity. The previous version, this they came back in 1993 and did this. And it's a take on Little Men and Joe's Boys, which I have said this before. At this point, I have not read Little Men or Joe's Boys. I'm saving them for the podcast. So <laughs> I'm not qualified to speak on that. I don't know if you looked into any of the sequel anime or... No, same thing. I just looked okay. up clips. Yeah, I mean, it takes the... It's also real again Mm -hmm. not as familiar with the story (laughs) so i can't say whether it's faithful or not Mm -hmm. but the animeification it lends everything like that the way everything looks is warm and cute and that is first and foremost the impression that you get i would say the first one is also cute but it's just yeah a different kind of cute yeah like a different subcategory of Yeah. The first one is very slow moving, beautifully painted backdrops, almost ambient in a way. And then this, the 1987 version is like very peppy and upbeat and they're hanging in there, even though the Confederates are down. Yeah. The style is very much, it's brighter, it's more buoyant, it's more reflective of what you think about when you think of classic, classic storybook animation (laughs) across the board. I would say that this is probably also the same in actually... I cannot think of a single Western animation production that evokes this in my mind right now. So the 90s, I know they exist. I probably would be able to list it off if I thought of it a little bit harder. But I was thinking like, what's a 90s Western cartoon? And it was King of the Hill. And I'm like, I don't know if that's the one I want (laughs) to, I don't know if that's the one I want to base it about. I would say the adventures, the new adventures of Winnie the Pooh. Okay. That's very, it's very similar in vibe, I think, and target audience. We're not, not that the Confederate army was a major presence (laughs) in the new adventures of Winnie the Pooh. The stakes are a bit higher. We're maybe two or three years above that in age range, but stylistically, tonally, I think they're very similar. It's very that. So I guess that brings us now to the modern anime that we have to discuss, which is Bungo Stray Dogs. Leo, what the hell is this thing? Okay, so (laughs) the, okay, okay. So as you're familiar with, but maybe not everybody listening with, there's a subcategory of anime that is called shonen anime, young men's anime, which is not always about young men, but most of the time it is. And the way that they, there's a certain subcategory of that, which is also like the supernatural powers based shonen anime yes this is something that i speak with a lot of authority so we're about to get into a little taxonomical (laughs) thing the other two i'm like this is a little bit outside of my time i'm not as familiar with the history that's going that far back but shonen anime i can speak to unfortunately extremely deeply (laughs) so the way that a lot of these shows work is they'll take an idea and then just build it out to be like this is just the, the central power or whatever i don't think it's something that is quite the same as what's going on in comics and comic adaptations in a way that's again if someone wants to correct me on this and talk about how this is actually exactly the same thing by all means whatever but there will always be a little card trick or a specific framework that your powers are based off of so in something like 
I'm, trying, I'm just trying to think of another example. I guess DBZ kind of does, Dragon Ball Z kind of does it in terms of using Buddhist history or using the, yeah. the iconography of that stuff as the basis for some stuff. And then something like Naruto with all elemental power. Actually, Avatar does this. The Avatar is also deeply indebted to anime. The, what is it? One Piece. I don't actually don't know enough about One Piece to talk with any authority <laughs> about One Piece, but... I have a bunch of examples ready to go and I can't think of them. But basically, the subcategorization that Bungo Stray Dogs uses for their powers is canonical literature in largely Japan, but then also the rest of the world. So, yeah, Bungo Stray Dogs, Bungo Stray Dogs translates literally into literary stray dogs. So all of the characters are famous authors. Yes. Which is for... A long time, I like knew that the show existed. It was on the periphery of my anime consciousness. But then when you told me that this exists, like what it yeah. actually was, I was like, <laughs> like, how would I gone through decades of my life? I guess it hasn't been around for decades. Maybe it has been around for decades. It's been around it's for a been while. Around it's been around for a while. Been- 2012. It debuted in 2012 as a manga. Okay, so Um, a decade. A decade. Yeah. So how did I not know that there was anime Herman Melville walking around (laughs) in the public consciousness, you know? (laughs) It seems like such a a specific intersection of what the hell? Oh, another example of what the powers whole thing is. Like there's a a series called Katekyo Hitman Reborn, and it's all like mafia tropes, mafia Im- imagery, symbology, and then the powers are like all supernatural yes. powers yeah. based on stuff like that. So, so the premise, I just need to sum up, <laughs> basically from that cyclone of information, this is an anime <laughs> about famous authors who are detectives, and they're trying to protect their town and eventually the world from the mafia. And as the show expands and goes on, we go to the United States and we meet the American superhero authors. We go to Russia. Pyotr Dostoevsky becomes a central character. Yes. It sounds like the Russians are villains. So that's geopolitically interesting. Yes. But so Louisa May Alcott is one of the characters that they meet. What's so funny, it's like, it's that same thing as just as the 1987. Little Women anime took major liberties with American history. One of these authors is named Francis Scott Key Fitzgerald, who is, of course, a fun blend of F. Scott Fitzgerald and Francis Scott Key, who are, in fact, different people. And then his superpower is the great Fitzgerald rather than the great Gatsby. So they're just like, whatever. Yes. Yes. (laughs) My favorite thing, the first episode that I watched was the one where they meet, or maybe it's not the first time they meet him, but it's. John yeah. Steinbeck and H.P. Lovecraft. And to give you a sense of what the powers situation yeah. is like, John Steinbeck's powers is called Grapes of Wrath, I think. It yeah, might literally yeah. just be called that. And what it's happens that. is that he stabs himself and grape vines come out and they <laughs> interface with nature. Yeah. So that's something that you're taking basically the reference to like another level in a way that yes. I'm sure that there's analogs in western media but to me it's like it always that's such an anime thing to do or such a anime rendering of you have this idea and then you take it in both a very literal and also a very strange and more like utility based translation of that and some of these are very interesting margaret mitchell is here and her ability gone with the wind allows her to like manipulate wind nathaniel hawthorne is the scarlet letter and he can convert his own blood into words (laughs) <laughs> and use them as ink, right? And I'm look, I'm just on Wikipedia here. But do you want to get so Lucy Maud Montgomery, the author of Anne of Green Gables, 
her ability is called Anne of Abyssal Red, which I'm quoting Wikipedia here, allows her to create an alternate reality known as Anne's Room, in which people are imprisoned by a giant doll named Anne, which it's giving Squid Game to me. (laughs) (laughs) it's it's, yeah the thing about it is that either they will another thing about like the shonen anime pacing specific is that it's the things that they fixate on are in the same way that the the second one is tonal fixations the tonal switches are very (laughs) non-existent the tonal switches and the ways that like characters interact here where either you get a full arc kind of devoted to, or either like you get a full one-on-one fight between a secondary good character and a secondary bad character in scare quotes, good and bad, or the interactions over five minutes. But they spend that time to like drop this character in, drop all this lore about them, and then they're just gone. They yeah, may appear yeah. in the narrative one or two more times. So the fact that Louisa May Alcott <laughs> has like a couple moments, you know, she basically yeah, plays yeah. like F. Scott, F. Francis. This Scott Key Fitzgerald, she's the main strategist for their group. And she's also kind of like an undersecretary in some ways. Yeah. She's like a tactician. Yeah. So she just kind of shows up. And if you're not familiar at all with any of these quote unquote characters who are all, a lot of them are named after famous authors. Yeah. You're just going to walk away from this being like, oh, I love Herman Melville. I've got my Herman. <laughs> I keep coming back to Herman Melville because his power is yeah. really like a giant floating fortress that's shaped like a white whale, which I'm like, ah, so good. <laughs> it's so funny. Yes. So Louise May Alcott is a character in this anime. The one last thing, the Russians come in and the name of the Russians group is Rats in the House of the Dead, which is extremely hardcore. Super hard. And I just want to highlight that that's incredibly cool. <laughs> so anyway, Louise May Alcott is a character in this anime. So she, her ability, Little Women... Well, in, in, again, in Japanese, it's story of young grass. So it allows her to slow time down to one eight thousandth of regular speed while she is thinking alone in a private room. So in a way, this ties into, it kind of betrays some knowledge of Alcott's process because when she wrote, she would just lock herself in her room for literally days on end. She would go without sleep or food and just churn out a whole book basically, and then collapse for a week. So, which was not, it was not a sustainable writing process and it caused a lot of, you know, health issues later in her life, but that was how she'd do it. And so it's funny that I guess they knew enough to be like, okay, her ability is when she's alone in a private room, she can make like, these massive strategies. Yeah. Right. Which I don't and, know. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Go. No, that, that's all I have to say. It's just these are, they're, they seem to be characters based on the authors. Louisa May Alcott doesn't look like no louisa may alcott and the lucy maude montgomery character looks more like anne of green gables than the real lucy maude montgomery so they're just very loosely based on the characters yes. <laughs> yeah but one extremely funny thing when we were doing our research and trying to get our hand heads around what this is you said louisa may alcott is only in this thing for two episodes is that right She's in for a couple, but she's ambiently around, you know? Okay. They'll have the group shots anytime because F. Scott Keefe is (laughs) (laughs) He's the main villain for the arc, I think, of the second season, which might be like the second. This is too deep in the weeds for this. Anyway, so because he's around a lot and she's with him specifically, Mm -hmm. they'll have that toss-up interaction. But the moments in which she's actually in the story are like two or three times, I think. Okay. Just enough so for you to know. she's not a major no, character. No, she's, I think the, 
on the villains wiki, she is labeled <laughs> as an insecure minion is her villain type. No. Which oh, so she's a villain. She's a villain. Oh, yeah. The guild is not oh. good. Sorry. <laughs> I had to know more about what this because it's a huge show, apparently. It's a huge yeah, no. thing. It's been on for a decade. It started as a manga, which is kind of anime style illustrations in books. Usually it's manga first, but sure. Yeah. Case, so yeah. it began so, as manga. Yeah. It became an anime. We've had feature films. We've had YA novels based on this. And then again, I cannot emphasize enough. It's been a thing for over 10 years in Japan. So yes. it's a pretty big. So anyway, but you were saying she's a villain. Yes. <laughs> she's evil. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The last piece of media that I consumed was watching mm-hmm. the good guy save their city by. Actually, did they save their city? I watched Moby Dick starts to fall on top of the city because they're going to destroy it. <laughs> and also the thing that I thought was fascinating was throughout the show, characters have flashbacks, reading stuff that this book changed my life. Or I'm constantly thinking about this written quote. Instead of being like, oh, where is that from? They're like, what book is that from? And then the object that the Americans are there to like take is right, some yeah. ap- apocryphal. apocryphal. It's like this mysterious book. That's what they're after. Yes. Where it's like people are interested in literature, but it's funny to see it taken in this particular direction. Usually when historical figures are being played with, like little dolls in other media, it's either some historical revisionism or like you're doing it for absurdity, the way that Abraham Lincoln (laughs) is in Adventure Time. (laughs) But in this case, they're not. I use sexy not to be like physical descriptor, but they're not pop culturally sexy characters. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Who is being like, I want to see Natty Hawthorne in (laughs) being adapted or animeified? Well, I'll tell you who. Daily.Montcott, who has committed to Daily as an Instagram account that is devoted to shipping the anime versions of Louise May Alcott and Lucy Maud Montgomery. They've got, it looks like uh, over a hundred memes at this point. We've got the lesbian flag in here. Damn. It seems that they do not interact in the anime, but this person is like, this is is the hill that I'm dying on. They are gay. (laughs) And it's just, I have not been into this scene since I was a literal child. And so it's very fun to see all kids this, are still up to these shenanigans. All the things that um, you remember and adore about that time in your life yeah. are still very much present. I mean, you were saying, yes. I don't know if this is before we started recording, that you mostly watched Bungo AMVs. To yeah, prep well, that, I tried to find episodes on YouTube and I guess the copyright mavens who mm. let the little women stuff get through bungo stray dogs is currently airing so yeah. you'd have to go to a streaming site for that yes so all that i could find were like fan-made amvs of louise may alcott x francis scott key fitzgerald <laughs> so people are out here <laughs> i mean that's the ship that makes the most sense i guess for her <laughs> sorry that's i'm like oh yeah i can see that that's so you're <laughs> 2d <finish. You're> like- <laughs> yeah i mean the way that that character is rendered is honestly In terms of representative, it both is the most faithful in some ways because of specifically the little women power. And it's also the most insulting and the worst. (laughs) (laughs) Where the things that made the other productions. Yeah, yeah. It's actually the story, right? And it's they could not turn all of the little women into little boys in at least the actual adaptation of it. 
because the, the whole point is that it's little women versus Louisa May Alcott is like stuttering and being extremely like, ooh, you know, it's yeah, just, she, it's, yeah. it's not great. <laughs> very much anime girl. She's also very young. I think a lot of the characters are actually really young, which is also fast. Oh no. They're, they're basically <laughs> turning all of their characters who were real sure. people into the shoujo version of themselves. Yeah. Well, I don't think problematically like young. I think we're looking at young women in men. Yes. Yes. Well, sexy, hot, young women and men versions of Louisa May Alcott, yes. et cetera. Yeah. Which is, again, the gears. The gears it's, are... Wow. Yeah, the galaxy brain of this. <laughs> but, no, but I just... It's yeah. so comforting to know that time moves on and civilizations rise and fall. But a tum, you know, like an internet user with the handle bloody x underscore corpse is still oh, here. Yeah. I ship Louisa May Alcott <laughs> and Lucy Maud Montgomery in this anime. It's... <laughs> Yes, I think the approach it takes to we should, we've been focusing on these American authors and Russian authors who've been kind of animeified, but you know obviously the entire Japanese canon is represented here as famous <laughs> authors as well. Yes, famous authors turned detectives, and it's just it's I think it it takes liberties with in, in the same way that Neon Genesis Evangelion, which is kind of it's the Citizen Kane of anime, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> wild claims no i like it i like it just the <laughs> pinnacle right the best of the best it takes similar liberties with christian imagery and religious themes that this book is taking with the western literary canon it's, it's just treating it with such a it does not give a fuck it's the thing that i'm again 99 sure that this is the case mm-hmm. the reason that eva is steeped in religious uh, christian specifically imagery like judeo-christian <laughs> imagery it's because they were like, this looks cool. It's not mm-hmm. meant to be like a broader commentary. So in this case where it's like, okay, clearly someone is enamored with the idea of literature and then wanted to yes. in some ways pay homage and in some ways desecrate is too strong, but in some ways just really yeah. just mess with the idea of what mm-hmm. that power could be reconfigured into and turn into actual supernatural powers that one has supernatural yes. power battles with. At that point, you, like, oh. you've committed, you just, you're just going to, that's just going to be yeah. what it is. And, yeah. and there's clearly an audience for it. Yeah. We have a manga, we have an anime, we have, I'm looking at Wikipedia here, we have feature length theatrical films, we have a video game. I wonder if Louisa May Alcott is in the video game. I would love to see that. <laughs> Stage plays, light novels. So it is just, it is huge. Is is it an empire? (laughs) Yes, the Bungo Stray Dogs empire, which I'm always surprised by like how much stuff gets the full (laughs) media mix treatment. Yeah, yeah. But then at the same time, I don't know. It's how in my own little bubble am I of my own curated taste and my own, shall we say, it's not even high standards. It's just like the stuff that comes up on your radar. There's just another world out there of stuff like that I hadn't encountered. And when I do encounter, there's a reason why I haven't seen it, you know, either reified or talked about in the same way. But yeah, it's so interesting. And it's funny to think about someone's first impression of the stuff that they ambiently know about culturally, then becoming this. I wonder like who's picking up crime and punishment because of Bungo Stray Dogs. Someone is, right? Yeah, maybe. Oh. And they're like, this isn't that at all. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm thinking of a series of unfortunate events, which all similarly played really fast and loose with literary references. I'm eight years old reading a series of unfortunate events. I haven't read for Esme with Love and Squalor, but Esme Squalor is there and she's pointing to something kind of bigger, right, than the book is. So I, I think 
it's not so unusual. I mean, no, it is. This is a really weird concept, right? But it sounds like it's a lot of fun. It sounds like it's, I imagine probably literature teachers in Japan must love it because if you're trying to teach word high schoolers, you're like, just like your favorite <laughs> character in this anime, right? We can finally oh read the novel that is based on the superpower, right? I, so I, it might be a way of concealing the pill and the peanut butter for the dog. Kind of thing. I think it's more, I feel like the attitude in anime in Japan is depending on who you ask, either still outside of the main culture or not. The ways in yeah. which we pick up other international pop cultural products and like engage with it outside of it in the same way that I have no idea what someone in Japan thinks American TV is. Yeah, yeah. So that's the part where I can't, on the one hand, it looks very popular. It seems like the, the what it is in pop culture seems so clear. <laughs> yeah. And on the other hand, someone, if any yeah. listeners in Japan, living in Japan, can talk about the contemporary state of anime yes. in the culture. Because in the West, it's rising. Anime right, is right. ascendant. This is my little pola string no, in the yeah, doll yeah. catchphrase, like anime is ascendant <laughs> in the culture. No, it is. It is. But I imagine it hasn't gotten weaker but it's also the ways in which we see it folding in to our broader pop cultural scene. It's very yeah. different than if it's like your homegrown industry. Yeah, I don't yeah, know. I mean, I feel like the only thing I can say authoritatively is it must be reasonably popular to have had so many adaptations and to be running for this long and you know to be on the fifth season. Yeah, But it's hard to say outside of that, how popular is this? specifically what is the role in the culture are <laughs> teachers of literature in japan using this to get people in the door yeah so I, at the conclusion of this wide-ranging conversation i can't say that i would recommend either of the little women anime series beyond check it out on youtube if you're curious and watch a few minutes i can't get my head around bungo stray dogs leo is there any anime that you would recommend for fans of little women and maybe specifically listeners of this podcast who are maybe interested in gender nonconformity, queer and trans themes so there's a manga that i can recommend i think it's called our dusk at dawn the japanese name is shimamani shimamani tasogare and it's told from the perspective of a young man who's realizing <laughs> that he might not be straight and then like it puts okay. him in conversation with a lot of other characters who are who do know themselves are sure of themselves or questioning themselves and it's a really beautiful not necessarily coming of age story but coming into yourself story it's technically based in reality but there are sequences that are kind of flights of fancy so that's one that I like to recommend just because it runs the gamut of a lot of stuff. And it's also a really gentle and nice story. In terms of things that evoke the spirit of Little Women, I would say that most Ghibli productions thread that needle of the spunky, maybe not always tomboy, but spunky group of girls, funny, interesting women in those worlds too. The non-Miyazaki Ghibli movie that I always beat the drum for is Only Yesterday. Which okay. is, again, it's not specifically queer centric or anything like that, but tonally, if you're into little women, I feel like that would be up your alley. Yeah. In terms of other stuff, I always joke that Naruto is like the most homoerotic story in anime, but I don't know if others would agree. And I also <laughs> would not actually recommend that. But the things that like you, you're like, this is obviously gay. And then there's things that are like, is this actually canonically gay? Does it explore this world? Yeah. Yeah. To me, Naruto, the series is something. But that's more like you're going in the Bungo Stray Dogs version of consumption. What else? 
Yeah, I don't know. There's not that much stuff out there that is queer centric that is specifically about. I'm trying to like thread the needle of both tone and subject matter. Yeah, because a lot of the stuff that I'm interested in or that I think is gender interesting, gender funny, is not necessarily in the Little Women world tone. There's this series called Land of the Lustrous, Hoseki no Kuni. The characters are like canonically not gendered. And they're these gem beings, G-E-M beings. And it's actually a really fascinating look at transhumanism, transcending the body and about the spirit and stuff like that, which is both not gay and also extremely gay. So straight up fantasy, big, weird, philosophically brutal fantasy, but it's also the way that you think about the body and the spirit, what constitutes a body and a spirit feels very queer. At least in the manga, it's more, they're a lot more androgynous in the anime. It's a little bit, they've been femized a little bit stronger, but visually it's the best of a certain type of anime animation. I don't know. And I just think the story is nuts. The story is not gay, but it's like very gay. I don't know if I can recommend Ayazawa work in good conscience, but her stuff (laughs) is out there. Her stuff is out there. Nana, Paradise Kiss, that stuff is out there. And in some ways it's really good. And in some ways it's absolutely horrible. Nana specifically. Okay. Yeah. Although if you read Nana as a story of love between two women, it almost becomes good, but the heterosexual bullshit is off the chain. So okay, I can't recommend it. Yeah. In a way that I was like, Jesus, <laughs> are we okay? okay? And it's like, no. Yeah. I is always someone who has canonically gay trans characters in her work okay. for a long time. So it's one of those things where technically it's there, but like, don't engage with it just for that. Sure. Yeah. Okay. And my recommendation is John Marco fanfiction. Okay, bye. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's an old field. That's an old tilled field of the yeah. culture. <laughs> yeah. If you're going to get into the yeah. fanfic world, the world is your oyster. But as far as oh, actual completely. canonical yeah. work, it's a little bit harder to yeah. suss out. I know more gay stuff. Another serious, semi-serious recommendation I would make mm-hmm. is Revolutionary Girl, Utena, U-T-E-N-A, where again, not at all like the content basis of a little women thing. It goes a lot of places. It gets really weird. That one can be hard to watch. I struggle through the first time, but the parts that are really cool and the things that they have to say about memory, the distortion of memory, trauma, the way that the mind processes trauma, the iconography is, even if you don't know it, you've probably seen some of its iconography floating around in the cultural ether, especially if you're into anime at all or like ambiently into that stuff at all. Yeah, it does get pretty heavy at times, but a lot of it is buried under metaphor. So you don't really realize what you've seen or like what you've watched. And then there's stuff that's actually just straight up very like, oh man, that's hard to watch. But in the context of the show, there's room. It's not just a thing that's done and then you're left yes. to just not yeah, yeah. process it. All This show is all about processing. <laughs> yeah. So in a way that, again, Ayazawa stuff, I think it's superficially maybe gets into more literal representations of queerness that does not leave you room to process all the stuff that's going on. Versus Utenot, horrific things happen both on screen and you're hinted at, but all that they're doing is processing the metaphor and then these highly stylized battles. (laughs) All right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that. from what I know about Utenot, I think that's probably the closest up the alley of our listeners. 
But Leo has certainly, you've given us a ton to work with here, a lot to think about. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming by for this very fun conversation. Yes. Where can people find you online and how can they support your work? I am on Instagram at (laughs) emo.ocean. And I'm also on Tumblr at emoocean, which is, I think, the better thing. (laughs) I mean, I have only ever had good experiences with flying under the radar on Tumblr, which I know is not the general experience for a lot of people. But no, (laughs) that's where I encountered a lot of anime that's where anime fandom it is still very annoying this is the thing about online spaces for anime stuff a lot of it is too annoying but on tumblr it's a little bit easier to filter out the noise and just focus on kind of what you're into which is why i never encountered bungo stray dogs on there (laughs) and yeah so that's where i'm out in the world right bhb beating heart baby is out in the world right now get it from your local bookstore if you want to it is not indebted that much to louise may alcott but you know i'm sure somewhere along the way it's like no. if someone wanted to build one of those charlie day meme charts of how <laughs> they can be related so i mean it's not indebted to little women but it's a lovely ya novel ya slash na ish about a trans boy and a his queer friend who kind of meet on the internet, fall apart, come back together. And it has been widely acclaimed, justly so, including by yours truly. (laughs) So please check that out. Check out Beating Heart Baby wherever you get your books. As always, I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. You can buy my book, Both Sides Now, wherever you get Beating Heart Baby. Pick them up as a combo, maybe. And you can find me online at peytonthomas.ca. You can find us on Instagram at Joe's Boys Pod and join us there for all kinds of fun conversations. We're Give us your thoughts on the Kylie Jenner, Timothy Chalamet situation. If that is still happening, I don't think it is or ever was. That's my (laughs) tin hat. But thank you so much, Leo, for being here. This was lovely. Yeah, thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.